0: Amen. Well, good morning. How is everyone? Good, good. The new year. Have you all kept with your uh, New Year's resolutions and, you know, keeping going with that? I've been uh, trying to exercise more and keep up on that, but it's not working yet. Um, But, man, it's super exciting to be here with you guys this morning and uh, to be able to open God's word. I want to just say uh, to add to that, man, what a blessing we have. Um, to have a a leadership that that said, hey, we want to dive into this series of what the church is and, and to have them write a book for us. And publish that book, um, make sure you dive into that. Make sure you take advantage of that opportunity. Um, what a great opportunity we have um, to be a part of a life group, and, and make sure you dive into that. I, I want to push you guys a little bit and say, man, that is a great opportunity for you to be able to dive in with a life group, do life together, encourage each other, study the Word of God together, and, and eat a meal together, whatever that looks like, uh, to be a part of those life groups. Um, those are key. Those are awesome to be in. So if you aren't in one, I want to say, get in one. Uh, Go see Ben. Find him and say, I want to get in the life group. He'll get you lined up with that, and you can be a part of that. But this is a great resource. Make sure you guys uh, dive into that and and get to be a part of that. So with that, I want to ask you a question this morning. Um, Have you ever looked at the church and just asked, why bother? Our new series we're in we're going to talk about that. But have you ever looked at it? I mean, we're in this season to where, um, you know, we just came through two years of, of COVID and all this junk and, and doing, uh, you know, church at home. And it brought us, I think, a lot of us to maybe a question, like, why bother? Why, why do we gather? Why are we the church? Why, why do we need it? I can do it at home. I can study the Word of God myself. It's my personal relationship with Jesus. And I, I don't know if I, I need to go to church. Why bother? Why do we need to go and be a part of the church? I wanna read something for you. In March of 2021, the, the Gallup Research and Polling Organization published a report that revealed, for the first time in U.S. history, a majority of Americans do not belong to a house of worship. The article entitled, U.S. Church Membership Falls Below Majority for First Time, exposed the fact but presently, only 49% of American adults belong to a local church. Gallup has been tracking this number since 1937. For six decades, the number hovered around 70% of Americans who reported attending a church. But over the last, or the past two decades, there has been a dramatic decline. This number is even more alarming when you isolate for specific generational segments. For example, only 30, 36 uh, of the millennial generation or generation is actively participating in a local church, it seems that an entire nation is asking a critical question about church. Why bother why Why bother being a part of an assembly? Why bother being a part of a church? Why, why join a church? Why membership? You know I had these questions when I was younger. Um, and I, I remember vividly, like, man, I, I walked away from God. I shared my testimony with a lot of you. I, I walked away from God, and, and I walked away from the church that I grew up in and, and the people that I knew and, and the things that I've been taught, and I just kind of went into the world, and I said, why bother? I don't need this. I don't need the headache of church. Why bother? It's a personal relationship which led down one road and, and the next road and the next road, and eventually brought me to the place where I was like, oh, I need Jesus. And it brought me back to the importance of church and church family and the assembly of God and coming back to what I knew. But I want to ask you this morning as you think about that, have you ever thought about that? Like, why bother going to church? Why bother being a part of church? As we start off our new series today called "Church, Why Bother," we look at our uh, to our passage in First Timothy. If you have your Bibles, you can open it to there uh, to help us answer that question. Now, first, second, first and second Timothy and Titus are known as Paul's epistles. Uh, each one of the epistles uh, Paul was writing uh, to a pastor to help them understand God's plan for the church and how to lead it. Now. Timothy uh, was very dear to Paul's heart. He pastored a church in Ephesus, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But what I I want us to see is that Paul considered Timothy family. Paul considered Timothy family. We see that Paul referred to him as my true son in the faith in 1 Timothy 1-2. He calls him his son. They have something deep that connects them. They have something that makes them family. It's the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ brings them together as family in the same way the gospel connects each and every one of us here who believe today. Each one of us, if we believe in Jesus Christ and we put our faith and trust in him and we become a follower of Jesus, we are family. We are spiritual family. Paul is concerned that people were going to leave the church and start following the false teaching. 1 Timothy 4.1 So he's telling Timothy to warn God's people to resist this temptation and remain faithful to the truth of the gospel. The truth is is that we're living, we are living in the days that the Apostle Paul warned about. In 1 Timothy 4.1 it says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The truth is is that many are departing from the faith through deconstruction. Many more are are just opting out of church by intentionally or subconsciously choosing their, their brand of spirituality because it's personal it's a faith that maybe lacks accountability uh, from the church or, or the authority that comes with maybe church leadership or, or a covenant that you, you're joining in with the church when you, you become a member. It's personal. But the truth is, is that when, when we disconnect from the local church, it's dangerous, right? When we walk away, when we disconnect from the local church, it makes us a prime target for Satan, What does the Bible say? That he prowls as a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. I'll tell you, I've experienced that firsthand when I walked away from the church. I was like, oh, I'm fine. It's personal. It's, It's my own faith. Man, Satan gets a little foothold here and here. And next thing you know, you're so far away from God that you're like, I don't know how to get back. It makes us a prime target. For Satan, our safety is found in the truth of the gospel and how the gospel fleshes itself out in the family of faith. As we look at our text today, Paul understands that before we can embrace the church, we have to ask the question, What is the church? We got to ask the question, What is the church? The Greek word, Ekklesia, which uh, New Testament writers used for the term church, has its roots in the Torah, which are uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. But it finds its greatest clarity in the writings of the apostles. There's a lot we can learn just by looking through the passages um, in which it's mentioned. If we look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it says this, And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's saying the church belongs to God. Ephesians 1, two or 1:22 say this, and he puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians 1:18 say and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the central and preeminent in the church. See, in each one of these passages, the word "ecclesia" is used, which specifically means an assembly or or a gathering of of people, a group of people that gather together for a common purpose. But here's the thing. I don't think when they were writing this, I don't think... um, they were thinking, man, that's all it's about, that the people gather together as an assembly of God or, or people who are believers. They, they didn't just mean for it to be that. By centering Jesus in our understanding of the church, they intended for us to view the church as a family that upholds the truth and spreads the gospel. They want us to, he wants us to be a family that upholds the truth and spreads the gospel. There are three essential characteristics that define the church. The Apostle Paul brings out uh, each of these three in our text today. And the first one I want to point out is that we are a spiritual family. First Timothy one, 1 and 2 say this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, In Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul here, he opens his letter here to Timothy by basically establishing himself as the writer and letting them know his authority came from God himself, that it wasn't about him, that it was coming from God himself. He gives his typical salutation, which includes both the author and the recipient combined uh, with a uh, ritualized greeting of endearment. And what he does is he uses two specific terms to describe God the Father and Jesus. He says, our Savior and our hope. Now, these are prophetic descriptors which are filled with uh, rich Old Testament uh, meaning. See, Paul knew that his recipients knew the Old Testament. He knew that his recipients knew the Torah. 2 Timothy 315, tell us that Timothy had been taught the holy scriptures from childhood. Now, Timothy's mom was Jewish, so she probably taught him the Torah when he was a young child. And so he knew what it said. So Paul knew that. Nevertheless, he would have recognized that the term Paul uses in verse 1 are full of promise and are grounded in the fact that God himself is the basis of our salvation. So Paul Paul's description of God as our savior, right? We look at that first. When he says our savior, uh, it would have taken Timothy back to Israel, right? taking him back to the Exodus. Remember the story of Moses. Moses was uh, told by God to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And he was supposed to lead the people out of Egypt. And so we see this uh, play out and and Moses goes and through through a lot of hardship, he he ends up getting him to uh, let his people go and and he leads the people out of Egypt. And, And this is a great story, right? And a lot of times we look at that and we see Moses as the hero of the story. It's easy to to, to see Moses and be like, man, he led God's people out. He's an amazing man. He is an amazing man. But the scriptures are very clear. They remind us that it's ultimately God. He was simply the messenger. God is the one that did the work. And for Israel, deliverance from Egypt was great. And he's also the author of our salvation. He's our Savior, it says. Paul goes on to describe Jesus as our hope. He uses this term to direct his reader's attention to a certain fulfillment, the fulfillment of Jesus Christ coming as the Messiah. And so Paul acknowledges Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and hope of Israel. But again, he's not just talking about Israel. Jesus is the Messiah that would bring hope to all nations, hope and justice, right? He's the Messiah that would bring hope to the world. And so he says he's our hope. This simple greeting here, it's a celebration of God as our Savior and Jesus as our hope as he starts this out. And then we see in verse 2, it's also a greeting that celebrates family, a family of faith that we have because of our salvation in Jesus. Look what he says. To Timothy, my true child, in the faith... Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the language he uses. Child in the faith and God the Father. God is not just our Savior, he's our Father. Timothy wasn't just a disciple, he, he's Paul's son. He he looks at him as a son. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, when we accept him and we become a believer um, of Jesus Christ, and we have a personal uh, relationship, we become children of God. He becomes our father. We have a new identity in him, and we become family. We're no longer strangers or acquaintances or just friends. We're actually family, brothers and sisters in Christ. In Christ, we have a new identity and a spiritual family. I love the picture of adoption. When you look at adoption, the beauty of it is the story of how strangers become family, right? I had um, a couple weeks ago, I had the awesome opportunity, my my sister in law, or my sister and my brother in law, um, they came up from Missouri. And uh, we had the opportunity to have them at our house for a week, and they were able to stay with us. And it was a a super awesome week that we had. But not that they were there. Their little kids came with them. Harper and Henry. This is a picture of Harper and Henry. The greatest part about having them at our house for a week were these two little ones. They wreak havoc. (laughs) But you know what? It was so great to spend time with them. And the funny thing about Harper and Henry is that they were strangers to me. I didn't know them when they were born. They were strangers. They're not blood relatives. They're not biological to us. They're strangers. But then the minute my sister and brother-in-law signed the papers to adopt them, they became family. Now they're close to me. They're not not strangers. They're not just somebody I know of. They're now known to be in our family. They're relatives. They're close to us. We have a forever bond with one another. And I love them. In a similar fashion, Romans 8, 15 through 17 declares, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We should treat one another as family and love one another as family and act as a family. I know some of you are like, no way. I know. I watch my kids. They fight. But we should act as a family that loves one another and cares for one another and is there for one another, encourages one another. We, we walk through life together. We do things together. We love one another. It's, it's a family. Now that we understand that the church is a family, the Apostle Paul goes on later in his letter to explain to Timothy two other essential characteristics that define the church. And, and the first one is that we model and confess truth. We model and we confess truth. If you turn to chapter 3 in First Timothy, we see this. Uh, Paul says this in verse 14 through 16. I hope to come to see you. Or I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how, you want, or how one ought to uh, behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Paul here is challenging Timothy on the type of behavior he should have as a leader in the church. And what he does is he gets very intimate and personal with Timothy. Paul longed to see Timothy in the church. He wanted to see those people face to face. He, he says, I hope to come to you soon. They meant a lot to him. They were, they were dear to him. He had a close tie to them. So the potential of seeing Paul uh, again face-to-face would have brought tremendous joy to Paul, to Timothy, to, to the church of Ephesus. But until he came, he wanted Timothy to know something so important that he tells him that he wrote it with his own hand. Now, it was custom for Paul to have uh, dictated in that time, dictated to a, a scribe um, what he was wanting to write. But this was different. This was a, a moment where he said, I'm going to write these things. I was, it was so important and personal to him that he says, I am writing these things. His exhortation to Timothy was to remember the church is a household. Once again, we see the language of family. And since the church wasn't just a building, but a household, a family, he says that Timothy was to model and confess the truth of the gospel in all that he said and did. His conduct was to be driven by an ever-present mindfulness that God himself is living among his people. See, according to Paul, Timothy was to conduct himself in a way that is consistent with the truth because the living God is among them. He's watching. Like what you do on stage and what you do at home, God is still watching. He wants him to, or he wants him and us to adopt a way of life that was uh, consistently marked by the impact of the truth of the gospel in our speech and our behavior. I don't know about you, but have you ever had a messy house? (laughs) Have a bunch of kids and you will. But what happens when, when you have a messy house or like, um, man, I, my wife hates when I do this. I'll bring stuff in and I'll set it down and then I'll go about my day. And she's like, are you ever going to clean that up? And like, you know, I'm just, sometimes I do that. I don't do it all the time. But like, things are out of order, right? Like if there's dishes in the sink or there's something, you know, the, the house just isn't in order. And then you get that phone call, right? Hey, I'm heading over. And you're like, what? Hold on. And then it's like the alarm goes off all of a sudden. You hang up the phone. You're like, everybody, move now. We need to get this cleaned up. You're you're throwing dishes in in the dishwasher. And and does anybody have a closet where they throw everything? I do. Um, If you go in, don't open the one closet in my house. But like, I'm literally shoving things in the closet to hide them so that everything looks cleaned up. And and you're like, you're vacuuming and you're like throwing things in this room and shutting that door. And and you got to get it ready, right? Nobody wants somebody to see their mess. We don't want people to walk in and see our mess. We don't want people to see that we're not organized. But it's amazing how motivated we become when we know that the eyes of someone important are on us, that they're going to see us. In the same way, Paul, he wants us to know that the eyes of the Lord are on his house, the church. God's watching He's watching how we treat one another. He's watching how we react to situations. He's watching what we do. He's watching how we act in public, in private. He's watching all of it. And so it's so important for us to remember that he wants us to adopt a manner of life that reflects our complete and consistent Commitment to the truth of the gospel in our speech and behavior. We have to be committed to that. Man, I, we should be known in our community as a church that loves people. We, we should be known as a church that, that wants to walk alongside people through things. We shouldn't be known for a church that, that or people that, that lie or, or deceit or abuse a situation or, or any of these things. We should be known for people that love people, that, that God is, is moving in this place so that we can go out into the community. And when people say, man, uh, Woodside Bible Church or, or this person, man, we know that they love us. There should never be a moment where somebody looks at us and they don't see a difference. And the truth is God's eyes are on his house and on his children. We need to love one another and live in a way that models and confesses the truth. And the Apostle Paul makes clear that the truth we confess is to be proclaimed and believed throughout the entire world. He reminds us that the third defining characteristic of the church church is, we spread the gospel. We spread the gospel. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In the previous verse, Paul described the truth that defines the church by using two terms. He says, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. These are both very strong words that uh, produce vivid imagery for us, right? By using the metaphor of a pillar, Paul is painting this picture for us of a large load-bearing column. Now, no doubt, the people that were living in Ephesus probably would have recognized this and thought of this and, and had this... Um, big picture of, of a big pillar maybe that holds up a, a temple of their day or a palace. Man, the, you, th- you just picture these huge pillars that would hold up all this weight. They were strong. What he's saying is far from being weak and powerless, the truth we confess, the gospel, is strong enough to carry the weight of our lives while holding us up through any and every circumstance. Do you believe that? The truth that we actually have is strong enough to hold us through any situation. He then goes on to declare that the truth of the gospel is the buttress or the foundation. The truth is that the height and stability of any building, you would know if you you know you think about this, it's got to have a strong foundation, right? If you're going to hold up a ton of weight and, and height and stability, you've got to have a strong foundation. So the measure and stability of our lives is determined by the strength and integrity of our foundation. In other words, Paul was persuading or persuaded that the truth we believe is neither weak nor subjective. Rather, it is powerful enough to act as the pillar and foundation of the church of the living God. It's no wonder that Paul then begins verse 16 by proclaiming, he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What Paul does here is he removes any shadow of a doubt or confusion concerning the truth of the gospel, which was once a mystery to him, but now revealed to him by God. And and what was that mystery? Paul then unpacks the truth of the gospel, which declares the mystery of redemption that is fulfilled in Jesus. In six clauses, Paul characterizes Christ's greatness by using the structure of a hymn in verse 16. Paul explains it this way, that Jesus is the one who was manifest in the flesh, meaning that in Christ, the um, eternal word became flesh, right? Right? He's meaning that, like, when, when Jesus came to the earth, the, the word became flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Romans 1 4 says, uh, states that by the Spirit, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Then he was seen by angels. Jesus' entire earthly ministry was marked by angels, right? From the angelic uh, announcement of his birth to his temptation in the wilderness to the triumph uh, of the empty tomb and his glorious res- resurrection, they were all marked by angel. He was seen by angels. He says he, he was preached among the nations. Paul himself was a testimony to this truth, Right? He had dedicated himself through three very treacherous missionary journeys, preaching Christ among the Gentile nation. He modeled for us that the truth of the gospel is to be spread through us to others until all have heard. He modeled that. He showed us that. That it's supposed to be spread through us. And then he says he was believed in the world. The greatness of the gospel was affirmed by the fact that in just a few short decades since Jesus' resurrection, it had been believed upon by men and women throughout the entire Roman world. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise. And then it says he was taken up into glory. Jesus' resurrection is the definitive evidence to us that he is the promised Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. After defeating death, one, um, after fe- defeating death, the Father clothed him with the pre-existing glory He had had once uh, worn in heaven. In John seventeen four through five, it says this: "I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had." with you before the world existed. Church, this is the undeniable authoritative truth. It's a transforming truth. It's a truth that we as the church believe in, right? And now we as the church, us, we have been called to go out and take that truth and give it to others. Nothing will get me more excited than outreach if you know me. I love going out into the community. I love going to meet with people who don't know Jesus. I love talking to them about Jesus. It fires me up. And it's like this passion that God has given me to want to spend time with unbelievers, I told the first service this, no offense, guys, but I would rather have this entire house filled with non-believers than for you guys to come. I love you all. (laughs) But man, I I love... Talking to people about Jesus and sharing the good news of the gospel. And when you do, and they give their life to Jesus, and that transformation that happens, and they have a new identity, and all of a sudden, everything in their life changes, their decisions change, the way they act maybe changes, and, and everything is new in their life. I love seeing that. Do you? We're called to be the church. We're called. To give others the good news of the gospel. We're family. We're spiritual family. We need to act as family in the way we do things. And I pray that this church would be a church that goes from these four walls and doesn't just hold it in here, but we'd be a church that goes out into our community, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our neighborhoods, everywhere. And we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, again, I'm just so humbled by who you are. God, I'm thankful that you choose us. Lord, the the fact that you actually want to use us as the church, Lord, you don't need us. You can do it on your own. But God, you choose to use us and you love the church. And I pray, God, that we, as the church, would love you back so much so that we would go and spread the good news of the gospel. God, help us to be a church church that acts as a family that loves you, that loves people, that goes in, into our community, Lord, and, and loves on people so that when people see us, they know there's a difference, that we have a new identity in you, God. Lord, will, will you move in this place? Even now. God, maybe you, there's somebody sitting here that's like, man, I have somebody that I need to go talk to, that I work with or or, or go to school with, that needs to know you. May you move in our hearts even now, Lord. Maybe someone's sitting here and they say, I don't even know you. And they just need to make a decision to follow you today, Lord. I pray that they wouldn't leave this building without knowing you personally, God. We love you. We worship you now, God. In Jesus' name, amen.